Good morning, we're going to read from Matthew chapter 24, the whole thing. So follow along with me, and you better follow along with me, because there's a lot of reading. All right, here we go. Chapter 24, starting in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to, the point, to point out to him the buildings of the temple. He answered to them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one stone left upon another, they, that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. The end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, and uh, let the reader understand, then let these who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter as on a, or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. That if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe. <clears throat> For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes in the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as, it, as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. God bless his word. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of prayer. Our access to you has a supremely high cost, the crucifixion of your own son. We praise you for you alone are worthy of all honor and all glory. Lord, we turn to you as our only hope and help. We're weak, we dwell in brokenness, we're desperate for your grace. Need 
Lord, our needs for your perfect sustaining power and faithful presence. We pray that among us today, you might work in a great and powerful way. There are physical challenges among us, health issues. There are many who are struggling with practical problems. Lord, it can feel as though the weight of the world sits upon our hearts. There are some here today who are suffering with broken relationships and loves. We are comforted knowing that nothing is beyond your knowledge. Nothing is beyond your power. Every detail, every fear, every concern, you know them all. You control them all. May your kindness, compassion, and sufficiency fill our minds and our hearts today. I pray that you might see fit to lighten the burdens and fill us with your joy. Father, we intercede today for many people who are seeking to bear witness in these difficult times for your, uh, for your kingdom's sake. We're especially mindful today of those who serve around the world as missionaries in dark and hard places. We pray that you would encourage them, that you would empower them, that indeed you might fill them with joy and with peace. Allow them to see fruit Fruit, Lord, that's significant. Fruit that is eternal. We pray that you will continue to call out laborers. Even today, here in this place, we pray that you might speak into hearts and minds. That you might draw out more harvesters to go to the fields on your behalf. Give us boldness and gospel love that exceeds our doubts and fears. We pray that you might give the people in our community ears to hear the gospel. That you will prepare hearts to repent of sin and believe the gospel. Now, Lord, we ask that you would prepare our hearts, our souls, to receive your message for us. That you might fill our vision with big truths regarding Jesus' second coming. That you might fire our motivations and desires with expectation of his appearing. As the Apostle John prayed, even so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you might come quickly. And we ask this in Christ's wonderful name. Amen. Well, Matthew chapter 24 and 25 occurs just prior to <clears throat> the Lord's crucifixion. It's sometime during that week, that Passion Week, that Jesus and his disciples were spending a lot of time up on the Temple Mount, and they were back and forth from there over to the Mount of Olives. It seems that they had been there late in the day and had left the temple and made their way probably out the eastern gate down into the Kidron Valley and across and began to climb the um, Mount of Olives, probably there in the Garden of Gethsemane, which Jesus apparently spent a lot of time, found time there as a refuge to rest and a place to pray. As they were going, it's also apparent from our text that the disciples had been marveling at the temple and the city. Of Jerusalem. The temple complex area was about 40 acres in area there on top of this mount that was above the old city of Jerusalem. It's nestled in the heart of the present day Jerusalem. They had um, probably had their expectations challenged. You know, all Jews had an expectation about Messiah and about the future and what was going to unfold for them in the coming days. They believed that Messiah was coming and that Messiah was coming primarily as a military leader. Remember the Jews had spent a great deal of time being under the oppression of other nations, whether it be the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians. They had been under duress almost their entire existence. They believed that the future 
had great promise for them, and that future involved the tables being turned and them instead being in a position of rule over others, and that Messiah was coming to establish that. Now, as they were looking around and admiring the temple and this, this complex there in the city of Jerusalem, their imaginations were probably fired. This was a dazzling, even radiant view uh, to see. It was something very impressive for these simple Galilean fishermen. We think about what they saw. I mean, the construction of the temple and the walls surrounding it is something to behold. It's made out of white limestone, and uh, you put that against the backdrop of tans and browns of a dry, arid culture, and you can imagine in the brilliant sun like we have today how that would just sparkle like some massive star sitting out there. And you get close to the temple and the walls, and you begin to understand just what an engineering feat it was. All of the stone that made it up had been quarried somewhere else and brought in. All of the shaping and uh, work preparing the stones was done somewhere else in order to be reverent about the spot where it was erected. Some of these stones were three feet in height, three to six feet in width or depth, and ranging from 10 feet to 30 feet in length. Some of these stones weighed as much as 50 tons. There was no mortar used. These stones were simply stacked on top of one another, their very weight itself holding everything in place, just like the rock was still in the earth, in the ground. It was an impressive sight, even breathtaking. Some 10,000 to 18,000 people had been employed to construct this temple and its complex. It took 46 years, 46 years. You thought the roads in Atlanta took a long time to build, but nothing can compare to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. There were 13 gates, and probably one of the most notable was the Bronze Gate, Nicanor Gate, that it took 20 men to open and close. It was a huge, massive thing for these guys who were accustomed to being in little, small fishing boats out on the Sea of Galilee. And so they were marveling at it. They were amazed by what they had seen. Now, we've all seen some impressive structures. Many remarkable buildings have been constructed by human beings, and we sometimes see things that kind of take our breath away. Maybe it's St. Basile's Cathedral in Russia or Notre Dame in Paris or Florence Cathedral in Italy or the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul or the Taj Mahal in India, the Palace of Versailles in France or the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, which is 162 stories high or 2,717 feet high. Now, just to put that into context for you Atlantans this morning, the largest building in Atlanta, the tallest building, is the Bank of America building, which stands just over 1,000 feet, so almost three times that height. So when you're down there next time, look at it and remember that the Burj Khalifa in Dubai is almost three times as high. Human beings have built some impressive structures. But the disciples were looking at this feat, the temple, and they were amazed at what they were seeing. They were thrilled by it. And probably in the back of their minds, knowing how they were just a little bit on the arrogant side because they were hanging out with the Lord, they probably were thinking about what the future was going to be and who was going to get what, where, whose office would be where. Jesus looked at them, and he said, I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down, thrown down, lest I remind you, a lot of these stones were dozens of tons in weight. This jolted them. It shocked them. What is he talking about? Jesus had said some bizarre things, but... This might have been at the top of the heap. 
He shattered their future expectations with just that word. Now, it's easy for us to get caught up in the world in which we live, to chase big dreams, careers, fortunes, accomplishments, fame, legacies. We may even realize some of those dreams during our lives, but most often, if you stay at this long enough, if you get the opportunity to taste some of those kinds of accomplishments, you're going to come to realize that this world holds a lot of emptiness, broken promises and dreams and disappointments. I want to spend just a few moments this morning talking about, thinking about our hope, the Christian hope to be particular, Christian hope that's not tethered to this world. It's a great hope, a superior hope that's based in Jesus Christ and His kingdom. The disciples would get there, but they weren't there at this moment. A lot of things were going to continue to shake the ground in which they stood over the next few hours and days. But we know as we look back something different. Jesus came that first time and He literally rocked the world spiritually. He came because we were desperately in need of redemption, of rescue. And only, only the Lamb of God could produce that. But the Scripture is equally clear that Jesus is going to come back a second time. After He died for our sin, was buried and resurrected, the Scripture says He ascended into heaven. But the Scripture is just as emphatic that He's coming again. Listen to these words from Acts chapter 1. And while they were gazing into heaven, as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, And said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Hebrews 9, 28. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the Christian's wonderful and glorious hope. So what I want to do this morning is think about how we navigate this world that's filled with disappointment, corruption, that's unsettled and quite disturbing with this hope that we have in Christ. I believe Matthew 24 and 25 offer us some key thoughts on this matter. After his alarming prophecy The disciples came to him with all kinds of questions. Lord, when will these things happen? When? Can you tell us? I mean, is this next week? Is this coming next month? And what will be the sign? How will we know of your coming and the end of the age? And so Jesus describes the second advent when his kingdom will not be created. His kingdom has already arrived, but when His kingdom will be consummated. And these truths, I believe, help us to long for His coming rather than to fear it or to be dispassionate about it. So there are three things I want us to cover this morning in these chapters Actually, I only had Craig read a portion of what we're going to cover this morning. We won't be breaking it down as tightly as we normally would, but I hope that we can give a flyover and you can understand what's taking place here. How do we navigate a disturbing, disappointing world and hold true to the hope that we have in Christ? How do we avoid being tethered and tied to this world, this broken world, and not to the hope that we have in Christ. I think there's three ways here offered. First of all, we must must embrace gospel perseverance. Gospel perseverance. Jesus described an unpleasant future for Christians in this world. For those of you who think that this world is going to get better, the opposite is true. The world is going to continue to get worse. The world is deteriorating. Human beings are becoming more panicked by the day. 
Why? Because we understand, though we might not admit it as readily, we're understanding day by day we don't have any control. We can't stop it. We can't change it. He says there will be many frauds who will come, many people claiming to be Christ. See that no one leads you astray. Do not be deceived by their lies. I just I did a little research this week, just a little, and I found I discovered between 7 and 12 people around the world right now who claim to be the Messiah. And they have people that believe them. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Do not be alarmed or unsettled by this. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. You cannot look at a news feed today without seeing speculation or stories about hostilities going on between countries, right? Lest I say, mention even China and the United States and balloons and... Not to mention the conflict going on in Russia and Ukraine that has been pushed way down the news feed now. But this is going on everywhere, going on day by day. There will be famines and there will be earthquakes. We're just coming off of a devastating earthquake in Syria, Turkey, where more than 50,000 people, it's estimated, died. Now, these things hit our radar every once in a while, but I did a little more research. You know what I discovered? Since Thursday, there have been more than 50 earthquakes worldwide. You didn't know anything about those, did you? It has to be devastating for it to hit the news. Earthquakes are taking place by the dozens every day all over this earth. All these, he says, are the beginning of birth pangs. They will deliver you up to tribulation. Who is you? Well, he's talking directly to the disciples at this moment, but he's speaking to all Christ followers. We're not, we're not sheltered from this kind of persecution, rejection, ridicule. In fact, we're watching it grow here in our own country even today. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Let me connect this with a couple of statements that Paul wrote in his letters to Timothy. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later, later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Jesus says there will be false believers who fall away in the midst of persecution. They will betray one another, hate one another. This is not a description fitting the church, is it? Remember what Jesus said before he was crucified? He said, I give you a new commandment. What? That you love one another as I have loved you. Not the kind of love that turns into hatred or betrayal. But when you see them betraying each other, this is evidence that their claims have been false ones. How do true believers persevere amid persecution and hostility? How do we persevere? There are two key ways, I think, in these initial verses. First of all, we need to believe all the gospel. We think about the gospel, we think about being saved. We think about being rescued from our sin, being claimed by God, being adopted by God into His family. We believe it, we repent of our sin, we trust in Christ's saving promise. Romans 5, 
We read, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were all sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The gospel is also, it's what redeems us, but the gospel is also what sustains us. It sustains us each and every day. It sustains us through all manner of opposition or difficulty or challenges. It's not just an assurance about a future moment. It's also how we navigate every moment of every day until then. There are many things about God that are unknown. Many things about His plans and promises that are yet to be realized or understood But there is clear truth that is known to us. The gospel is a future promise we anticipate, but the gospel is also a present promise we apply. Romans 8, 18 through 25 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For he, for who hopes for what he has seized? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Suffering and hardship are a part of everyday life in a broken world. Our hope in Christ equips us to traverse the brokenness toward eternity. This truth enables us to persevere all the way home. That no matter what we face today, we understand that the promise is bigger, even swallowing up the doubts, the fears, the concerns of this present world. It is but a momentary light affliction, the Scripture says. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, we have all these things coming against us and we are are pushed down, We, we are crushed, we are perplexed but not defeated. Because our trust, our hope is in Christ. We have an ultimate victory. So we believe all the gospel, not just For the future when this world is finally over and we're looking to eternity, not just to get into heaven, but we embrace the gospel to live daily through the challenges and difficulties, the brokenness that this world presents. And we also proclaim all the gospel. He says, proclaim throughout the whole world. This gospel, this kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony. God leaves us here amid the brokenness to preach, to speak his gospel. But not just to speak and preach it, though that's something that we should do better at, right? Is to constantly tell people why we have hope in the midst of such a hopeless world. But the way we live our lives, to live with confidence and assurance in our hearts. And as they see this, His glory is revealed in us and through us. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed verbally and demonstrably through our lives. That's why it's so important for us to send believers out with the gospel. It's why it's so important that we proclaim the gospel daily. 
It's a precursor to Christ's return. Matthew 10, 16 through 22, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves to be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father, the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who does not fall away or renounce Christ. These are the ones who are truly in Christ. Those who renounce their faith by word or action never really were in Christ. Gospel perseverance is both motivation and it's evidence. We persevere because we understand how all this works. We expect opposition. We expect turbulence. We expect persecution. No one told you that, did they? Someone probably told you when you turned and repented of your sin and believed Christ that your life was going to be better, right? Jesus is saying that's not true, at least not now, not in this world. It'll be better in the fact that you have this assurance, but it's not better in the terms of quality necessarily. So we're not surprised or disturbed by these things. We may not like it, but we embrace it as our calling and our assignment. As we persevere, we give evidence that our faith is genuine. We give evidence that Christ holds us in his hand and will not turn us loose. And we believe this. And we live as though we believe it. Secondly, we are not only sustained by gospel perseverance, we are sustained by gospel readiness. Gospel readiness. It's so easy to become enamored with the things of the world. Common, common for humans to view this world as our ultimate destination. It's demonstrated this way in the way we live, right? Not just what we think, but the way we live. We hold all the things of this world with fierce determination because of that. We want all the material things that are present. We press for all the experiential opportunities, and too often we prioritize this broken world over the future new creation, becoming fixed on temporal things and indifferent toward eternal things. It takes discipline. It takes intentionality to guard against this drift, and that's what it is, is a drift for many of us. So how do we do this? We are ready. We stay ready. Be prepared. This is the message that Christ is giving us. He uses these terms in, these, in this text, in these chapters, to be ready, be watchful, be waiting, be expectant. Do not allow yourself to be lured into the rhythms of a broken world. So how do you do that? Well, you walk daily in the disciplines of the faith of God's Word, of prayer. You spend your time in the Scripture seeing the promise that He is returning. He is going to come back. And He's not sending an invitation to let you know when He's coming back. He's not sending you any indication even other than the signs that we see here. He says, when these signs are taking place, know that the end is near. Know that I'm even at the gate ready to come. So we walk with the people of God, and we encourage and exhort one another. We engage in God's gospel work. This is how we stay ready. We're ever vigilant, keeping our minds turned toward this expectation, not allowing ourselves to get lulled to sleep by this world. Be ready, be watching, be expectant. We work for Christ in this present world as if we have a hundred years to accomplish things that he's put before us. But we also live as though we expect him to return in the next five minutes. 
How would that change your life? If you thought he's going to return today at 1230, would that change the next few minutes of your life? How you go about living your life? We are to look ahead, always hoping, yes, even loving his appearance. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, wrote Paul. Live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door when he comes and knocks. Through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Keep your hearts and minds and eyes focused on the horizon, looking for the King. Christians are not uninformed about these things. We understand them. We study them all the time. We hear them. How do our lives demonstrate that they have a grip on our soul? This week, Karen was sick. And um, she wasn't improving, so we went to the doctor on Friday. And I, being a good husband, I want you to take note of this, offered to take her. And uh, so she didn't have to navigate that in the rain by herself. And so when we got to the doctor's office, I drove, you know, under the drive-thru, and I dropped her at the door, and I watched her go in the door and go up to the doctor's office. But I had this one thought in my mind. She's going to come back. Now, I'm one of those guys that likes to make use of every moment, right? So I'm thinking of all the errands I could run right now while she's in the doctor's office because I don't know how long she's going to be gone, right? Probably an hour, maybe an hour and a half. I know what you're thinking. I didn't cave in. I said, no, as sure as I go off, you know, I can have a flat tire. I could be in an accident. I could, my car could quit or I could get caught in traffic. She doesn't feel good, so it'd be wrong for me to be off out doing other things when she's ready to go. And so I found a spot in the parking lot, and I sat there, motor running, ready. And a couple of times as I'm waiting, I had reoccurring thoughts. You know, I could still go over and do this while I'm waiting for her. How long has she been gone? But I stayed right there. I fought the temptation. And sure enough, suddenly the text came. I'm checking out. I'm coming. I dropped her in gear. And I went rolling right up to the front door and was sitting there when she came out a few minutes. I was waiting. I was ready. I was eager for her to get there and get in the car. What happens to us a lot of times in life is we have all these things. We have good intentions, but we have all these things that crowd into our peripheral vision. And we think, you know, I can just go do this. I can do that. I can take care of these things. I'll just spend a little time doing this. But what happens? We lose focus on what's the main thing. And that is eyes and hearts and souls that are ever on ready. Engine running, waiting for the Lord who says, I'm coming. I've sent you signs. I've given you plenty of signs that says it could happen any moment. Are you prepared and ready? Are you watching for me to appear? Gospel readiness. But then he turns his attention to gospel faithfulness. Gospel faithfulness. He gives us three vignettes here that challenge us toward faithfulness, beginning at the end of chapter 24 and then moving into a good portion of chapter 25. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not res- that you do not expect. And then he starts talking about a wise servant and an evil servant. He says the wise servant in charge of his master's household while the master's away. A wise servant, a wise and faithful servant. What does he do? Well, he takes care of those that have been placed in his charge. 
Gospel faithfulness is indicated by how you steward your responsibilities and your relationships. How you steward responsibilities and relationships. This servant has been entrusted with the master's possessions. He's been entrusted with managing his affairs and his workers. Blessed is the servant who is found faithful when the master returns. But the wicked servant, he says, presumes upon his master's absence, doesn't expect him to return promptly, mistreats the workers, beats them even, associates with drunkards and parties. What's he saying? He's going on and doing that which appeals to his own pleasure, that which caters to his own desires feels good about what he's been entrusted with. He feels good about the assignment that he has. And yet, he's going to reap harsh judgment when the master returns. Gospel faithfulness means that Christians see this life as a trust from God. It's not your life now. You've heard that, right? It's my life. I'll live it however I want to. Wrong. Wrong answer. Bad answer. One day, you may have to stand before a holy and just and magnificent God and say, I really thought it was my life and I could live it any way I want to. God says, that life was given as a precious trust to you. I expected you to use it as I designed it to be used. Not according to your own wishes and your own pleasures. Do we presume upon this life? Do we take ownership of it and pursue our own desires and pleasures? Such a servant exposes himself or herself as a fraud, as a hypocrite. These are not my words. This is what Jesus is saying. Judgment's certain. Gospel faithfulness is the charge that's given to us. In this Already but not yet time. Secondly, our gospel faithfulness is also demonstrated by how you steward your faith. You're believing in Christ. You're trusting in Christ. Chapter 25 in the first 13 verses here is a parable about 10 virgins waiting for the bridegroom to appear. In biblical times, weddings were arranged, right? There were no invitations set out, no marriage date set. No one knew when the wedding was going to take place. They just knew there would be one. So the bridegroom would be going about the business of preparing life for his wife and hopefully children, new family. He would be preparing a home. He'd be preparing his career. He'd be preparing himself so that he could take care of them well when that time came. The wedding party had to be on their toes. The bride had to keep her garments ready and prepared and clean, right? You remember that in Scripture? Keep the wedding garments ready. Because she never knew when he was going to show up at the door. And then one day he looked up and saw all the things he said, today's the day. I'm going to get my wife. She belongs to me. I'm going after her. And here he goes. And as he's going, he's calling the wedding party. Those of you that are watching and waiting, today's the day. It's happening. And these ten virgins, part of the wedding celebration, they're supposed to be waiting and watching. But there's a contrast here. There's some who are waiting and watching well. They have plenty of oil for their lamps. And so they're there for the duration, right? They're always ready. We might even see and make a connection here between the oil and the Spirit of God being filled and prepared with the Spirit of God waiting for the bridegroom to appear. And then there are the others who don't have adequate oil. They're not prepared. In fact, they've gotten lazy and slothful, presumptive upon the others. They go to sleep, and suddenly the call rings out, He's here! He's here! And they say, Oh, I don't have enough oil to trim my lamp so that it puts out enough light. Would you give us some of your oil? And they say, No, we may not have enough for us and you. Go and buy some. There are always vendors selling oil. So while they're buying their oil, the bridegroom comes, 
They go to the wedding party. They enter into the wedding feast and shut the door. How are you stewarding your faith in Christ? Gospel faithfulness is nurturing our souls, filled and fueled by the Spirit of God. Not in our own strength can we remain vigilant, but by the Spirit's power, we stay faithful. We stay faithful until He returns. I'm constantly reminded as the world is broken and disturbing and it's disappointing and it can even cause despondency and I have to remind myself of all those who have gone before who have endured and persevered and finished the race people like Paul people like these other disciples who once they got on the right track, they persevered even through martyrdom for Christ. Well, if the Spirit was faithful to them and helped them endure, why not me? And then he directs our attention to how we steward our treasures. The third vignette is the parable of the talents. A man going on a journey called his servants together, and he entrusted them with possessions. His possessions. To one he gave five talents. To one he gave two. To one he gave one. And he said, take these. I'll be back. It was a test. What would they do with these possessions that belong to someone else? How would they steward? How would they manage what belonged to someone else? The first one with the five, he went out and invested his and made five more. He doubled The second one took his two and doubled his talents. The third one, who only had one talent, took his, buried it in the ground, and by his own words said he did this because he feared the master. He knew he was a hard and exacting man. And when he came back, he was going to hold him responsible. He didn't want to take a chance on losing it or being accused of spending it or stealing it. That wasn't why the master gave it to him, was it? When he came back, he rewarded the first two, but the third one, he said, take that talent away from him. He can't be trusted. He's not a good steward. He's not a faithful steward. He thinks it belongs to him. He was reprimanded, he was judged. Everything we have in this world belongs to the Father. Everything. My jacket belongs to the Father. He's given it to me to use for a time. Your car that you drove here this morning, it belongs to the Father. may have your name on the deed, but it's only by the grace of God that that's true. He's given it to you to use for a time. Your home that you'll return to later today. It all, your family The next 24 hours, if the Lord doesn't return, you think it's yours. It belongs to him. (laughs) He, if he chooses out of his grace to let you have use of it, it's because he has put you as a steward. What will you do with those 24 hours? What will you do with that home? What will you do with with that car? What will you do with the talents and the abilities and the brain power and the speech and all the things that he's invested in what you call your life? What will you do with it? He's going to hold us responsible for it. He's going to hold us accountable for it. He's going to examine and see what burns up and what doesn't. How do we navigate a despondent and broken world while holding to the hope, the sure hope that is ours? We persevere in the gospel. We persevere. We're ready, expectant, looking for his appearing, even loving. Oh, God, as we got up this morning, may the first thought in our minds is today could be the day. How great would that be to start the day in this wicked world and finish the day in the glories of heaven?
Amen. Amen. I'm ready to go. Do we steward our resources, the things that God's entrusted us, or do we use them merely for our own pleasure? We all have a strong faith that Jesus came 2,000 years ago. Probably hard-pressed to find anybody who would deny this to be true. Even unbelievers believe that historically Jesus came, right? At his first coming, his kingdom came with him. But the scripture is very emphatic and very clear. As he came once, he's coming back. He's coming again. Could be today, could be tomorrow, could be 100 years from now. I don't know. But I do know this. He's coming. He's coming. And he's coming for those who belong to him. And for those that don't, well, it's not good. It's not good. One thing I want to point out, one last thing, is you get down here in the, into this end of this chapter of 24, and you find out, you find out a real indication that universalism does not apply. Not everybody's getting in. One was chosen, one was left. One was taken, one was left. One this, another there. This faith of ours is not universal. There's not a universal calling to the kingdom. God has his elect. God says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Have you believed the gospel? Have you repented of your sin and put your trust in Christ alone? Are you persevering? Are you resting in his power, his provision, his promises daily? Are you watching and expecting Christ to return? Are you faithful? Is Christ and his kingdom your priority today? Let us pray. Father, we thank you and bless you for who you are, for the opportunity that we have to celebrate your incredible gospel together. Lord, to think about, to think about and anticipate your return. Lord, I think about those who waited and waited and waited for years upon years upon decades for you to come the first time. And Lord, sometimes that's as far as it goes for us. We presume upon your first coming and don't think about your return. I pray that not be true for us here at Milton Community Church, that we would be grateful, even ecstatic for your first advent but, Lord, that we would be thrilled and loving your appearing, thinking about your second advent that is to come, and that we'd be vigilant, vigilant, being prepared, ready, Lord, even faithful in all things as we look toward your coming. Use us, Lord, for your glory and honor, according to your wishes, according to your desires, for your honor, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.